Hello and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan Cole. <laughs> Missed my cue. <laughs> I'm Nathan Cole. And I'm... <clears throat> One more time. I'm Nathan Cole. And I'm Akiko Taramoto. And that was only our third try saying our names. <laughs> and you'll actually be coming back to work um, in just, uh, what, less than two weeks now, right? A week, I think, right? I mean, wow. So <clears throat> yeah. Almost there after. You can catch the last episode, an unfortunate break. Catch that last episode if you want to hear all the details behind why Hakiko hasn't been at work in two months. But um, yeah, we're almost there. He'll be back next week for uh, Dudamel's first week back in a while. And meanwhile, this week for me, actually tomorrow, is going to be a performance at Disney Hall, LA Phil Chamber Music Series of Schoenberg's Fourth String Quartet. So something that none of the four of us has played before, actually. Have you played a Schoenberg Quartet before? I forget. I played... I think the second one is, is that the one you played yeah, uh, yes actually the the one that brings the singer in for the last yes. movement. yeah in the college that, so yeah. that's sort of some people consider that the first moment of real atonality in music right uh, I, like that because the singer comes on and she sings i forget how the words translate exactly but it's like i feel the air from a distant planet or something like that oh Wow, you remember way more about this than I do. Cause well, <laughs> I remember there's a singer. That's <laughs> no, so something like she sings something like that. It's supposed to be ooh, you know, the the distant okay. planet is a tonality. You just sound like a South Park character. <laughs> I, I wish. It's like Baby Park McGizax comes and <laughs> starts singing. But no, that's the only one I'd played before. And then we, you know, we both play and love Verclair to knock the sextet, but that's pretty early for him and uh yeah it's yeah. when you, you play that and you're like oh man Schoenberg is the best and then <laughs> no but it's you know we're just talking about how great five pieces for orchestra five yeah yeah five pieces for orchestra is just a great piece yeah and we played that so much in Chicago with Baron Boehm because he was he was so influenced by Boulez and Boulez was a big Schoenberg right. person so we we did a lot of that remember um there was that night in philly when we were on tour and uh somebody got sick and i was on call oh <clears throat> i'd been rotated off the concert i think or rotated off yeah i've been ro rotated off the whole concert but of course i was on call and then so um, you were set to go out on the town yes and in fact i think i oh there's <laughs> you you had started going out on the town <laughs> <laughs> i already partially just just begun my evening and uh, i got the call around seven forty-five. so and that was show. on the program yeah, it was first on the program. So yes. I, uh, I, I have like, I, I love that piece, but I do have really weird memories of showing up and not feeling totally great about. And not feeling totally sober or you were, you were still sober. I was trying to avoid the, the actual problem, but, um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I, you know, I, I already had like half a beer or something. So, oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. That doesn't anyway, sound like you. So that's, I mean, the beer part. Yeah. I, well, you know, it was a long time ago. I was like a different person, but, um. Medical people know this, but if you're on call in, in an orchestra, even it's uh, you gotta wait till eight o'clock. That's right. Well, I did eventually love playing that piece, although you know we had a colleague in Chicago, well Max Ramey, whose uh, music we used for the as our theme for the first season of this show, 
And uh, yeah, he was comparing, I don't know if it was that piece specifically, but some Schoenberg to solving a crossword puzzle. And once it was solved, there wasn't so much interest in continuing to play it over and over. And I get what he's saying for this piece, this string quartet. I mean, it's pretty tough going. It's weird. It's, it's definitely expressive. I mean, he's asking you to play with expression and with shape. And, you know, there are certainly motives that come back again and again and lines that are, it's easy to tell what lines are more important than other lines. It's just the notes that are different. It's like you took a Mozart quartet and just oh, put interesting. So it's random like, notes in there instead. Like it makes sense. It's like Jabberwocky or something. Uh, yeah, actually that's a perfect comparison. Yeah, perfect. Because it does make sense. You know what it's about. It's just not, um, <laughs> I think I find Jabberwocky more satisfying <laughs> right now, just cause you, I, I'm getting a little more meaning from that, but you know, maybe that's the lesson that's, I'm familiar with English as a language. So familiar that I can hear nonsense words and get some meaning out of it. It did remind me speaking of Berenboim actually did remind me of something he said about the most important, well, or the most essential composers, which is different than saying the best composers, but he was talking about which composers change the course of music. So basically he was saying, you know, Mozart, undoubtedly a great composer, but if there had never been a Mozart, music probably would still have gone on the same way it went on. Well, huh? See, I, I, I've always been confused by this statement because I probably, I can sort of figure it out, but I don't know. It, it, It seems like you'd get a lot of, you'll probably get a lot of (laughs) <laughs> negative feedback about <laughs> dropping Mozart from the from Well, that's the why I, I, like, I, I like feedback, positive or negative. But um, anyway, this was Berenboim's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So you can blame it on him. Well, okay, so, so he said Mozart. And, okay. Well, let's start with Bach. He said, you know, Bach is, yeah, music would not have been the same without Bach. Like he took sure. it from a certain place to a certain place. And everyone after that had to reckon with it. Schubert and Mozart to giants, you know, can you imagine not having all of their music to play, but if they hadn't existed, still Beethoven would have come along and done the same thing. Mm. So Beethoven, yeah, if I remember right, was the next one, you know, with without whom music couldn't have taken the same direction that it took. Okay. But then Wagner, then yeah, everybody after Wagner either loved or hated him, right? There were the two camps. Yeah, that's funny, but... yeah, the, M- Wagner's the one I still um, haven't quite absorbed yet and then Schoenberg that was the next one wait so it goes Bach Beethoven Wagner, Wagner. Schoenberg yeah so it was literally those if I'm not leaving anybody out which I guess sort of wasn't there something surprising in there like uh Carabini yeah something <laughs> right um I don't know well, maybe not well I don't know if we're missing somebody that sort of takes us to the classical period or whether that was Bach actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can imagine, you know, Beethoven takes us to the romantic period in a way. Wagner takes music past that. And, and then Schoenberg finally <laughs> takes it to where some people say it's not even music anymore. <laughs> I'll be uh, reading our program tomorrow <laughs> before I play. Are you talking? Before? No, I don't think I'm talking. I like talking before the, the chamber concert. 
Oh, you mean, yeah. So on each of our chamber concerts, they ask one of the people playing to go out and greet the audience first. And I guess you can say whatever you want. You get a few minutes and by, you know, at the end, you always have to do the sort of housekeeping, turn off your cell phones and here are the exits, that kind of thing. But before then you can keep it serious or make it funny or whatever. Yeah. I've always enjoyed doing it. Do you feel like it takes a little of the pressure off? It does. I think it breaks down the fourth wall, whatever that is. Yeah. I agree. And, uh, and I think I'm a better speaker than I am a violinist, so... Really? Because you say you really don't like speaking. Well, I really, really don't like performing. <laughs> all right, well, then it's all I relative said, then. I, I stand by my my ranking of what I'd rather do, but so, yeah, it... Well, you know, I, I think I just find speaking easier than picking up the violin and playing. The audience, they, you know, they're on your side once once you open your mouth. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think they're on our side. Um, well, see, I mean, you, I'm on the performer's side whenever I go somewhere. Well, see, this is why you're a better performer because you have that assumption that's really just built in. For me, it's like I, <laughs> even if it's not true, I just it doesn't matter if it's yeah. true. Obviously, you know, and there's it's not even true. I mean, it's not true or not. It's not true or not true. It's like, you know, if as long as you, I think you take it for granted, so it's not even really a factor in your mind. Well, it does, it does help. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, there's no way to go out there and feel adversarial with your audience. Yeah. I only feel that when they're opening cough drops for five minutes at a time. Right. Which as we discussed last time, that's been bothering me more and more the extraneous concert going behaviors. Right. And yeah, we discussed that last time because, uh, one of you had helpfully written it in and that's what Today's episode is all about, too, is uh, answering some more of your questions that you've written. And we love getting those, love getting all that feedback. So the address to write to contact at standpartnersforlife.com, or you can even take the shortcut contact at sp4l.com. And just before we get to that, a few news items. These are t-shirts. They're not ready yet, but uh, some of you had noticed that in a couple of the videos that I made. Um, I think specifically a trill video. I'm sporting a great Stan Partners for Life t-shirt. And we had a couple of those made, one for me and one for you. And I actually wear mine, you know, to work sometimes. I don't know if you wear yours. Well, yours is more like a workout yeah. type. Yeah, maybe not. Which I have worn several times. Well, you've worn to work out. I'm not sure that yeah, you've worn Yeah, and I keep thinking someone's going to like ask me about it, but no one does. So. Uh, well, we need to get more of these out into the world. And yeah, that's what this news item is about. So we're in the process of getting more of them made up. I love the logo that Helen Kim of the Think Farm put together for us. Um, and now it's going to be on a t-shirt. So more news when that's available. But pretty soon, if you if you want to show that you're a stand partner for life, then you can wear it right on your chest. Next and I mentioned this last episode, but it's getting closer. I'm really excited. I'll be at the fish off competition, um, from May nine to 12. And I'll get to talk to the groups, chamber music groups. This is a competition for, they have a couple divisions, but basically breaks down into pre-college age and then college and post college age chamber groups competing at South Bend, Indiana. And, um, great competition and I'll be there covering it along with a couple other 
really fun podcasts, including our friend uh, Renee Paul Gautier. Her podcast is called the Mind Over Finger podcast. That's one you should check out if you haven't yet. But uh, she'll be there as well. And we'll be talking to contestants and jury members and putting out a bunch of episodes of pretty much one every day. So look for that. Well, not we, but you. Right. Yeah, you won't be able to go. Still no no long travel for you, and you'll be working. Oh, I'll be working. <laughs> I guess. More, yeah. to, more to the point. Lastly, I am putting the finishing touches on a master course. It's going to be a great chance to work with me this year over the long term, not just on auditions, because I've, I've done a couple things only focusing on auditions, and those have been, you know, good chunks of time, a couple of months, but this is going to be half a year, you know, six months where we can really get into not just audition preparation, but all the things that go into building a great technical foundation and really performing with confidence. So not ready to announce yet, but I'm just letting you know it's coming. So if you want to know more about that, just write to me either through my website or contact at sp4l.com and more news on that next time. So we ready to get to some listener questions. Well, Lauren Smee writes in, and um, this is a great question. I'm going to (laughs) condense some of these a little bit. They look great on the screen, but going to be a little long. Um, Lauren has been thinking a lot about contextual intonation lately. Um, So she writes, I think when I was growing up, I always thought of intonation as a fixed thing, either in tune or out of tune. But lately I've been thinking about tuning to the chord in orchestral music and how knowing what chord I'm playing and how my note functions within the chord helps me to play better in tune with my colleagues. So, okay, that's the first observation. And okay, I mean, that's something that, I mean, that's high level. I like to think that I'm always thinking along those lines. Um, Um, But that can sometimes conflict (laughs) with playing with the person next to you and and all of that. So, but ideally if everyone's on the same page and all the violins are playing the third of a major chord, then maybe hopefully we're all playing uh, a little low. Maybe this is cause I really didn't do well in theory. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's easy for me to be kind of glib about it and say, you just have to play in tune with people around you. Let's say, especially for times when you're, you're holding chords like a Bruckner or something you know like the that. worst is La Mer, oh, yeah. that harmonic. Um, well, it's oh. not the worst. I mean, you know, that's a unique problem because it's a harmonic and it's hard to... But I remember having a terrifying moment early on in this orchestra. Oh, you know, yeah. it, was, it was like 23 or 24 or something. In the beginning of Mahler 1, same thing? Yeah, High although harmonic. I don't remember specifically having that problem. <laughs> I think that one's easier to... Like, why is that easier? And that context is... Or maybe you can hear, maybe there's less going on so you can hear. That's an A natural maybe versus an A flat in the WC. I think A natural is easy to decide yeah. where it is because it's just with the I mean, open a string. Is, but. A is A, but um, yeah, I remember a couple of people thinking it was me. I was that you know, maybe they were right actually. So I, I, I remember having that, that very bad moment there. Well, this is something that Lauren <laughs> mentions later in her email too. Yeah, wondering if it's you. So she says, and you know, I can appreciate this sentiment. The thing is, sometimes the brass and winds go sharp. 
Yeah, sorry. Now this is my editorial comment too. The brass and winds usually think that we, the strings, go sharp. Yes. So everybody thinks that everyone else is going <laughs> sharp. Um, I'm not sure if I should be adjusting to what I'm hearing around me or if I should just try and tune my section and hope that the brass and winds are listening to us. There I was... Fu- sorry, I interrupt. Oh, no, no, just this. I find it hard to know if I'm the one who's out of tune or if I need to hold my ground. Right, and we. I was laughing at the the phrase hold my ground because i've seldom seen that work out in an orchestral context well what about a section holding its ground yeah but how are you gonna i mean like it's easier with a smaller section but i mean oftentimes for example uh because or i'll often hear people ask well the oboe gives the a so that means the oboe is always right and so if the oboes if the four oboes for example are playing something then everyone needs to adjust to them at all times. Is mm. that right? And I, I think I would say, you know, whoever comes in first, <laughs> you know, if someone comes in for a chord, then whoever sure. comes in next should adjust to them. Um, right. But I mean, just to pick out the oboes specifically, it's not true that, you know, if, if the oboes join and they join <laughs> lower or higher than everyone else, that everyone else suddenly needs to adjust. I mean, I, that's not right. really a way to... So that, that's the same for any section, work, really. Yeah. So yeah, this is, this is a really interesting question. You know, my um, yeah, my immediate reaction was just, you just have to use your ear and play in tune. But then it came back to me, you know, it's, it, it's happened, you know, even in recent memory, if I really actually sit down and think about it, sure that I felt that something was not, like as a section, we were not in tune with like an instrument, the winds or brass, and that, yeah, it, it behooved us all to, to actually, I think in that case, it was lower the instrument. I think I forget if it was a flute or something, but we, we really had to pull the pitch down. And, and when I say we, you know, it, it sounds weird. We were actually able, I think to, to my ear, at least kind of get together and, and pull the pitch down a little bit. I think, you know, we're still musicians in the end. I think we're able to hear a pitch and, and think we've got to try to match that. As you say, you know, this, this instrument was playing first and we were joining them. So, yeah, but I mean, for that to happen, everyone has to, well, their attention has to be drawn to it. And then you have to, at least a majority, sure. Right. But then you have to feel like you should, you know, yeah. Versus holding your ground. First of all, in general, it's, it's more appropriate for lower instruments to kind of hold their ground. That's just the way tonality works i mean the the lower tones contain all the overtones within them so you know it's better in a string quartet to adjust to the bass and you know for choral groups hopefully you've got a bass section that can hold the pitch well as we know groups singing a cappella usually sync and pitch so ideally in the orchestra people's ears are always on the basses the bassoons trombones um the low horns we know it's not always ideal but and i've been trying to be a lot more mindful of that i think um i think i used to have a much more arrogant attitude about intonation i used to think well i have have a good ear i know what's in tune and that's a sense it's not you know i used to hate tuning chords and in uh in rehearsals and chamber rehearsals because it would be like you know i mean i wouldn't say like i'm always right or something but it's like you know i I can adjust in real time. And I didn't, I, I feel that I felt that. And 
even somehow to a certain extent, it's like in one, those cords are flying by, like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really tough to, to just, and like, even everyone's, these are people, you know, people are playing flatter or sharper all the time. And so to me, there's a certain element of like, you just have to use your ear and roll with the punches. And then recent years and getting older, maybe like you're, you crave like the flatter side of the pitch or something. I don't know. But, um, Oh yeah, that's true. And, and you, you know, you do notice it makes a difference with the timbre in your instrument. You know, if you're, if you're always veering to the brighter end of the, you know, the pitch, then, um, you're not getting like the, some of the core of the, the sound that you. Well, that's for sure. I mean, I'll tell you two excerpts where that makes a big difference. If we're talking violin auditions, um, the Brahms slow four. movement of, huh? Brahms four. Uh, which movement? No, I was gonna uh, the slow movement of Brahms four. Right, where yeah, if you're riding on the high side for all those, I mean, because it's on the G string, right? So. so you say if if you're riding on the high side, then it's ye kind of a well, it, it's bright. not even. I mean, it's an, I don't even know that it would be super noticeable. I just think that um, well, that that's is. that I'm thinking of that as an excerpt where having like the dark, the darker color is is what the committee wants to hear and so the more you can get of that the better oh yeah i i agree i mean yeah now, now that you mention it i do think of that the ones i was thinking of right away where i i feel like they're easier excerpts and so people can make the change really quickly mm-hmm. and hear the difference it's a beethoven nine the slow movement which is in b flat right okay sure. and j- immediately that's a different sound when all the flats and naturals are on the lower side and uh, Mozart 39, the slow movement as well. Oh, sure. Um, That's yeah, in a flat. Notoriously difficult intonation wise. But I think a lot of times uh, people come to me and they feel like they don't have the right sound in those two excerpts. And it can often just be the pitch, which was exactly what you were saying. Yeah, but of course, it still has to be in tune, especially the. It has to be in tune with itself. The Mozart, yeah, I hadn't hadn't thought of, timbre wise. I, I think that you know the correct notes have to be a little have to have to have to be a little brighter, and then you know the right notes have to be a little darker. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it just sounds out of tune. Yeah, and may, I mean, in the end, maybe that's the best answer to this question: is you know it, it has to sound, in tune, or or it has to. The intonation has to not be a consideration to the listener, right? You know, if they notice the intonation, then it's wrong. Yeah, and I always wonder <clears throat> how much the audience is bothered by that kind of thing. Well, they're high-level audience members, just like they're high-level players. So, I I often wonder these days, especially like how much this, we're veering off topic, but you know how much we train the audience. Like, how much does that happen? And I think it's actually more than we think. I think so too. And, you know, when people talk about an orchestral performance, you know, if they use words like pure, you know, there was a purity or or something like Mm -hmm. that. I think a lot of times that has to do with intonation and either it means that, yeah, you know, unison things were really unison so that it sounded like one instrument or, you know, a combination of instruments sounded like one instrument or could mean also that chords just were allowed to resonate yeah, um, or maybe it was like the the piece just allowed them, you know. Well, yeah, some things some have room. to be written in such a way to. Yeah, because these days there, we do play things that um, that don't always give. You know, they're not always masterfully orchestrated, so they don't always give the ear places to rest. You know? <laughs> I, I'm trying to be diplomatic, but yeah. 
sometimes they're not even orchestrated at all it's basically a synthesizer part sort of spread out sometimes into the orchestra sometimes you just orchestra. get a bunch of bullet holes and a piece of staff paper anyway <laughs> moving on well that was a great question and um thank you lauren for giving us that it was a great question I've, i feel like i could we could probably have a whole episode on have we not done an episode in intonation yet on intonation yeah probably no not a whole episode yeah that i'm sure everyone out there is dying to hear a <laughs> long well, podcast we'll about. have to bring the instruments for that one and yeah you know and yeah it would be probably be surprising how we should do some kind of like test blind test for what we think is in tune well ingrid berger writes um about sight reading but specifically sight reading in higher positions she feels like you know she's comfortable with sight reading but once it gets to fourth position and higher security goes away not for prepared playing but (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) but for sight reading so yeah well it's, it's funny to think of fourth position i for me and i was you know a decently advanced player by that point but when i came to my first uh, my second teacher, which was my, you know, post Suzuki teacher. And we did the Mendelssohn concerto and I felt like fourth position. I feel like I've never played in fourth position and, you know, all these ledger lines. And I felt like I needed a good few months just playing in fourth position to even feel like I knew what it was about. I remember my first experience shifting above third position or maybe even shifting to third and anything above it was in the American Quartet. I was like seven. Well, that's a ridiculous piece to play when you're that. Young. It really, you know, it was really bad. I, I told you that I'm still scarred to this day. You mean listening to or playing? Listening to or play. I can't, I cannot play the Dvorak American Quartet. It's such a great piece. And I, I, I can't play it at all. Because like, you know, that, that experience, you know, we talked about this, like I could only play it. I was first violin. Like, I don't know whose idea this was, but I could only play it really, really slowly. I think it was just the last movement. I could only play it really, really, really slowly. So playing at normal tempo is impossible. Do you still have that recording? My mom does somewhere. Really? We, we have to dig it up and play it on. Ah. It was, we, we do have to, we have to broadcast a little bit of that because it's pretty special. Breaking the world record for youngest violinist to play Dvorak American Quartet. I'm sure that I'm, I wasn't, I'm not breaking any or I didn't break any records. But I'm sure that it was the worst, youngest. Well, if there is anyone younger than seven playing that piece, that's child abuse. So, you know, the worst part was those chords; they were terrible. So, yeah, I, I, and in some ways, it's like maybe it, it scarred me shifting above, you know, third position. Maybe that, like, because that was practically sight reading, right? I mean, you you wouldn't have known how to prepare. A piece yeah, I'm like, like, what that is anyway. the comparison? It's sort of like you can sort of tread water. You must be able to swim or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Where yeah, you can float in your back, so now now go swim. I don't know. It was it was bad. Well, what I mean, what are we talking about with sight reading? I mean, should you be able to sight read in general as well as you perform? I mean, not certainly not in every way. So, what's the difference? Like, what what are you missing when you're sight reading that you would get with some preparation? You have a chance to plan things. You're asking me. Say. Yeah, well, I mean, because I think that's in a way that's what this question is about. You know, I mean, what, it's, it's what's absolutely the preparation true. All about? Of course, sight reading gets scarier the higher up you get. 
because yeah, your so your sureness because like your point of reference is is shifted and it's is because you don't know what's coming next so you can't make a finger a sound fingering plan yeah it just feels unsafe you're like you know you can't wait to get back down to like where you absolutely know where everything is now here's an interesting thing i uh, here's one answer to the question because this did improve my sight reading in general if you take any you know anything could be a piece could be an etude but insist on staying in one position only so let the fourth position for example so it can't be something that goes higher than fourth position but like let's say uh mozart third concerto mozart three and you're only going to play in fourth position it's going to make for some weird string crossings wait so you practiced like this I have. I mean, not, I, I can't remember if I specifically did Mozart 3, but I'm just trying to think of any piece that would be familiar. And you do it only in one position, and it really builds a, a familiarity with that position. Yeah. And then you do it only in the third, or only in second. God, you, we're such different players. <laughs> I'm just listening to this being like... Uh, okay. Or you know, Kreitzer too. Yeah, I mean, I get, I get the idea. I just think that's wow. a good one too. All right. Well, then you should take over this question because I can only empathize with the asker of the question, and I, um, I don't have a solution necessarily. Well, and it sounds like you do. So, well, but maybe you know, maybe the difficulty is more with higher notes simply, and if that's the problem, then. You know, I would suggest taking something that's familiar, like a familiar tune and playing it an octave up without looking at any music so that you know what something is supposed to sound like, but you have to play it for yourself in real time and figure out a fingering. Like, I don't know, happy birthday. Akiko's making the shrugging sign. Maybe high scales. You know that I'm lazy about doing things the way you're talking about. So I, I would probably be more amenable to to doing a lot of scales and arpeggios it just makes you more comfortable at you know especially the arpeggios yeah um i also you know i i was really working on um double stops during this little hiatus here because oh yeah well yeah i mean to a certain extent because i i always get confused and this sounds so stupid i get really confused by playing more than one note at a time (laughs) are you talking about sight reading no just in general performing you know, that's why Bach just, I refuse to perform Bach, you know, which is a luxury. I can say, no, I'm not going to do that now because <laughs> I have to. But yeah, because, you know, your brain has to work. It's like you're suddenly asked to play like a pianist. Like your brain has to work on two different things at the same time. Also, you've got the contextual intonation. Oh, yeah. That's a whole other level that I'm not even working on yet. But yeah, it's like the intonation that, you know, just getting through it cleanly is just, like such an extra challenge. So I, anyway, I think that it, it does benefit your brain a lot though, to have to keep track of where two or more of your fingers are at the same time on your violin. So I think that's, that's another idea you can, I mean, I think everything you do in a higher position benefits your playing, but you know, this, the other thing I've been working on, so not necessarily related, but, um, I realized that I'm actually really bad at, um, string crossing stuff so i've heard you say that for years so ba- no bach is totally my achilles heel because it's like okay i'm terrible at keeping track of more than one note at a time like hello that's you know 
can't play into the fugues. And then (laughs) (laughs) that rules out all the fugues. And then after that, it's like, well, okay, well, maybe I can focus on like, you know, the the fun jig movements. It's like, well, no, I can't do that either because I have a lot of trouble playing in first position, constantly switching strings. So what's what's your ideal piece? So what's left? It's like, you know, really slow Bach. It's like (laughs) I can play all the slow movements or some of no no that's that's an exaggeration because a lot of them have double stops so you know i end up like i'm very limited fortunately when i had to play bach auditions it left me with so few options that you know it was very self-selecting none of this is true by the way it's completely true and this is like this is why auditions are part luck part no you know savvy just knowing what you can do what you can't do all right well uh, are we helping Ingrid, sight read better. <laughs> Ingrid, if you can't re- sight read above fourth position, just don't try. No, um, no. I mean, you're right. Your your advice was good, and and I think that my <laughs> advice to just if you're if you're too lazy to you know which I am to have some kind of like super organized method, then I would just recommend doing a ton of arpeggios and scales, you know, that hit the high notes and and um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the double stops, thirds and, and fingered octaves are super tough and they're always good for, for hand strength, which I think, you know, it's partially a strength issue. And you had mentioned at one point knowing where your fingers are on the fingerboard. And yeah, if it's not your habit to have, <laughs> to leave the first finger down, especially um, start getting into the habit because if you know where that one is, then... Yeah, and that's something that, you know to this day is a challenge for me. So, well, I'm, I'm always having to remind myself, but you know, I mean, for sight reading, it's a big, and you know, it can't, obviously you don't have time for it to be a conscience con <laughs> for it to be a conscious thing. Um, and sometimes you have to cut yourself some slack too. I mean, I, Oh yeah. I mean, sight reading is still sight reading. Yeah. And you'll find that so much of it's, it's contingent on, on factors that are a little bit beyond your control. Like the, well, like, and when I say that, I guess I mean the printing of the music can make a tremendous difference. I mean, we've yeah. some composer, I mean, there's some Prokofiev out there. It's like, it looks completely impossible. It sounds terrible because, you know, people are sitting there trying to figure out what these notes are. And, you know, a, a B will look like it's lower than a G or, you know, just constantly issues like that coming up. And then suddenly someone comes along and makes a decent addition of it. And then, you know, it's the ledger lines are clear and it sounds like a different piece. Everyone's yeah, with playing the, the you right know, That Russian music, it's, uh, it's a real problem because they won't release the copyrights for some of them. So I can't, you know, the first time I play Prokofiev Fifth Symphony with a decent part, I'm totally going to be that old guy. I'm be like, <laughs> I, when I learned this, it was handwritten. You kids don't know what it's like to... <laughs> They're going to be talking to us with, you know, their entire body, their entire face is going to be covered with tattoos and <laughs> you'd be like, shut up, man. I'd be like naked. And, you know, no one's I don't gonna care what your anymore. old parts looked like. <laughs> um, no, that's how like, I imagine I the future. I Daniel Barenboim guy is, but. But yeah, Prokofiev 5 is still kind of chicken scratch right now. Right. Our last question today comes from. Uh, a wonderful listener, and I'm not going to use her name because yeah, it's a little bit personal, the, the message, and I'm not sure if she'd want to be identified, but you'll know who you are. And I'm sure this is a question that many of you have. Um, even if you're not in high school, you can think back to when you were. So she says her goal in life is to become a successful orchestral violinist, me and a billion other violinists. Um, 
there's competition out there. I've done intense research and it seems to me that everyone that has done well was either A, very successful at a young age, or B, went to a fabulous conservatory like Curtis, Juilliard, etc. And she says, that's not her. Um, she's done well. She's been concert master of every youth orchestra, done well in competitions. But she says, if we're talking college, frankly, there's no way I would ever get into a conservatory like Juilliard or New England for multiple reasons. Um, and part of that, she says her repertoire isn't as advanced as people she hears about. Like she's not, she didn't learn Tchaikovsky at 12 years old. Right now, her repertoire is more like Mozart three, Brooke, Kabalevsky. Um, and she's got a couple years before college auditions. So the question really is, do you have to go to some incredible school or be successful when you're very young to end up getting a great job? What should I do? Or as an extension of that, are these the concertos I should be looking at for college auditions or do I need to find other ones? So the first question, you know, do you have to be successful at a very young age? And it's hard, you know, that means different things to different people, but you know, she mentions, for example, soloing with the Philly orchestra when you're 12 years old, which some people do if they win, for example, a youth competition. Mm -hmm. And we'll have very young soloists sometimes. I, I almost feel like that, that was more of a thing a generation ago to bring on the really young kids. I almost feel like... Right. You mean you to know. solo the orchestras? Yeah. Well, yeah. I just, I, I almost yeah. feel like that's a little bit looked down on now, like... It's almost exploitative to. It's like put it's a like the MBA. It's like you have to have had at least one year of college. Yeah. So I don't see or hear of as much, you know, of the really young kids soloing with big orchestras now. But sure, I mean, there are kids that do major competitions, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I definitely, you know, I was not that. You were more in that world than I was. Yeah, but I, it was almost like that highlighted the fact that I wasn't doing that more. Yeah. I mean, I think the two of us can safely say we were not, you know, we were out and we were not out there, you know, lighting the world on fire at between the ages of 10 and 14. Now, I mean, we were, no, playing. I think that's when I stopped practicing. So. <laughs> I mean, as far as the repertoire, that is a good question. Uh, and you're right to go to the conservatories of the kind that you're talking about, Curtis, Juilliard, New England, generally the people getting those spots are playing more advanced repertoire, but those auditions take place when you're 17 or 18. Um, that's not to say that you have to play Tchaikovsky concerto. You know, I didn't really learn Tchaikovsky until I was at conservatory. Right. And I, I, I did learn most of those young. You did. You learned them young. But what is that? Yes. I mean, how is that helpful? Really? There are extremes, right? I mean, you can learn them too young and then you either you burn out or it just stunts your musical growth or, you know, and then there's waiting too long where there's so much catch up to, to be done. You know, I think we both were in the sort of acceptable range where, you know, I think it was helpful for you to learn all that stuff younger and not have to catch up as much later. And it was nice for me too to always feel like I could handle the repertoire that I had. So the question is, do you have to have gotten really far at a really young age? That's the first part of the question. Yeah. In order to get a good orchestral job. And I would say for that, the no. answer is definitely no. 
the fact is that, you know, an orchestra audition is really just a few minutes. Yeah, nobody knows how old or young you are. I mean, you, you, there are people in their 40s or older. But even like from a, like, oh, it's better to learn it young perspective. I mean, like, you can learn, or is it, I mean, you just, all you need, it's a very limited amount that you need to know to get a job. Yeah. And I would say these differences seem so much bigger when you are younger. Like I can remember the first time that I went away to a big music camp type thing. And I was, let's say 15, 16. And that was my first exposure to East coasters, fancy East coasters like yourself. Um, but yeah, 15, 16. And I'm, you know, I'm playing Lalo and you know, maybe I had, I forget. And what was that? Was that at Vinyowski Asta or, or something? something? Uh, this would have been the New York String Orchestra Seminar okay. in New York. So you had like an, an audition for seating or something? Well, no, it was just, it was more once uh, they seated you based on whatever criteria. I don't know the audition that you took to get in, but, or who you knew the connection like, started Kentucky, early. you go in the back. <laughs> kind of. Um, no, it was more like once I showed up, and rehearsal was about to start. Okay, what's every teenager going to be doing before an orchestra rehearsal starts? They're not going to be playing the, you know, the box suite that's on their music stand. They're going to be playing every concerto they know and every Paganini Caprice. And I had never, <laughs> even, <laughs> I had never even started a Paganini Caprice, and I was just, I didn't want to play at all. I mean, wait. So when you were sixteen, you'd never seen a Caprice. I don't believe that I had played any of the caprices that at sucks. 16. So you I, made up that ground in like record time now. Well, okay. but that's the thing. It's like what you, yeah, there I was, I was 16. I hadn't played Tchaikovsky, Sibelius, Brahms, any Paganini caprices. And, you know, here were some 16 year olds who had played all those things, which you may also have done at that age. Not mm. that you would have been sitting there blasting all of it in the orchestra. Yeah, but I mean, but everybody remembers those kids, right? The, yeah. yeah. So the it, the gulf seemed so wide. You know, it's like, they've done all that. I've done none of that. Right. And, you know, yet if you had checked in on this a few years later, as you said, it's not that I, you know, <laughs> made up all that ground or something, but I had played many of those things. You not only played, but played them better. I mean, you know, played them really well. So, I mean, the answers, so the answer to the first part, the first part being what you have to have done really well. Well, super successful at a young age. I think you have to have done a lot of performing or, or no, you have to. No, I don't to, think, I don't think so. I think you can, I think you have to have, I, mean high I level think you have performing. to have solid, good teaching in your background. You know, I think you have to have had solid preparation, but I don't think you have to, I mean, cause I personally... And that's the thing that drew me to orchestra auditions. I was fine. I was never considered a great player at a young age. And then but I, I blossomed very slowly. And I realized, yeah, like I said, that it's just, it was literally just about eight lines of music on a, you know, in an excerpt. And, and to learn those really well and to play them really well. And that and I loved that. I loved, there was like a certain democracy about that you yeah know, that, I, that i really liked it was like it's not about where you went to school or or um like yeah if you won a competition or if you you know right well that's the second part of the question do you have to have gone to a big conservatory because you know 
she writes in her email that from the results she's seen and looking into it, it seems like everybody has gone to, you know, a big conservatory. I mean, it depends how you think about it. It's like people have gone to those places because they're strong, you know, so it's hard to, I mean, the answer, the short answer is no, of course you don't have to go to those places. Um, I mean, we can think of so many counterexamples and, you know, it may be true that more people than not have gone to those kind of conservatories. Right. But then the, the corollary is that you have to have been able to go to those places, I think. Yeah. I mean, if you can't go for other reasons, that's totally fine. I mean, there's nothing about those places that confers like, you know, an expertise on you. And in fact, I think you would agree that Curtis, you know, they, they weren't so keen on preparing you for an orchestra audition right. or career. So that would almost not hinder you exactly, but that wasn't, you know, they weren't pushing you in that direction. And even Juilliard, you know, where they're, they, they say they're more practical about it, but you know, I, I sought out a teacher who I knew would help me specifically with excerpts because I knew there were teachers who would not be interested in that. But I think you have to be at the level where you could have gone to those. If you're, if you're saying that your level is not that you could go to those places, then, you know, that's a whole other problem. And I think then, you know, I wouldn't say that a major orchestra job is out of your reach, but it's, you know, less likely. Well, then you've got some ground to make up. I mean, you have to, you have to question, you have to look at your motivation. Yeah. And again, like I said, it's the great thing about an orchestra audition is that it's, it's, you know, pretty defined. I mean, someplace, you know, Boston will say, I just, you know, we want these two or three Brahms symphonies go, you know, and, you know, plus other stuff. So that sucks because they're like, you know, we don't know, you don't, you don't know what we're going to ask you. And Right. And it's like just 120 to, minutes of music. Yeah. I mean, and it's not possible every day to play all that music. So unless you know, you have someone guiding you who really knows what the excerpts are. And even so they can ask you something. It's not one of those excerpts so that, you know, that's, that's really tough if, if you're, if you don't have the, the correct guidance, but by and large, I think auditions are pretty little, like, you know, little digestible bits, which is what excerpts are. Right. And then, there, like I said, there's a democracy to it that I think you, you can sort of exploit. And I hate to say that. I, I I hate to say there's a system that you have to work, but um, that's immediately how I viewed it when I was presented with a stack of excerpts. And I thought, this is, you know, I can, I can do this. I can, I was at Harvard. I was like, I'm good at cramming. I can, I can present something that looks acceptable for Exactly. <laughs> you know, the, a, a short amount of time. You it, sound like a hedge fund manager. No, like, you know, I see a weakness I can exploit. I really, I did. You know, I remember thinking I, I, I didn't practice a whole lot when I was growing up when I should have. And I missed out on this whole other solidity of, of technique and, <laughs> you know, that you have that, you know, I, I didn't. And I, I'm the um, one that missed out. I, I didn't learn how to shift until you know, no, but you, you know, later. look at you have a system. I never had a system. Well, now I have a system. My system was solely like, I, I think I can, I think I can pull this off. <laughs> That's the name of my system. <laughs> we should patent that. <laughs> I think I can, yes, I think I can pull this off. So, um, and then for what concertos to play for a college audition, there's much more latitude there than there would be for an orchestra audition. Because I think the college audition is all about showing your potential. Yeah. 
rather than, you know, where you are right now. So, you know, for college, you absolutely play what you're working on. You know, you want it to sound polished so that people know that you can bring something to a polished level for level for performance. But yeah, that was a great question. And, um, I mean, I've actually heard from, I've actually heard from a lot of high school aged violinists who are grappling with this very question of, you know, what, what to do next and what's, what does the future hold for you? And yeah, I mean, only you can answer that question ultimately. And you want to know that you have the goods to compete, but at the same time that you don't want to sell yourself short. I mean, already Akiko and I took different paths to get to where we are. And there always has to be that period, I think, where you you just say, I, you know, it doesn't really matter what other people think. I'm just going to put in the time and see where I can go. So thank you so much for that question. It's, a, as I said, something that so many listeners are grappling with now, I know. And, and those who are already on the other side, you know, maybe you didn't go to conservatory and you, you think, well, you know, what was I missing? And, you know, maybe you weren't missing that much. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, if you're what you need to do to be successful in auditions anyways, just to present those five minutes that really fit you and that persuade the listeners, they're not going to know or care where you went to school. That's, that's how I got my career. So, <laughs> <laughs> Want to know more about faking it, then let me know. Well, thanks as always for these questions. And, and please, if you want your question on the air some are easy to answer over email and some we like to talk about on the episodes so contact at standpartnersforlife.com contact at sp4l.com that's the way to get to us and we love reading your comments your questions your feedback so thanks for joining us 